All right. Mark chapter 3, at least is the starting point. If you uh, did not hear the first hour, we are looking at the lectionary reading from Monday. I know we're way behind, but that's what we're looking at. And on that particular day, the gospel reading was Mark chapter 3 and verses 22 to 30, but we read 20 through 30, so I'm just going to read them really quick, get us in the basic understanding And then see what we can do here. Everybody ready? Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 20. And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. For they said, he is beside himself. And the scribes, which came down from Jerusalem, said, speaking of Jesus, that he hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, uh, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house." Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies, wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. And then the very last verse in this section, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. So, what we are dealing with, and we started in the first hour, we're dealing with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the reason we're dealing with this is this is a sin that is said to be what? Unforgivable, unpardonable, right? You cannot be forgiven, you cannot be receive any pardon for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So, we looked at a number of factors. I'm not going to review everything in the first hour, but the main thing that we have a basic idea of, of understanding what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, specifically speaking, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is where they accuse the Holy Spirit of basically being Satan. Because Jesus did his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, They accused that power to be that of Satan. So therefore, they're basically accusing the Holy Spirit of being Satan. And Jesus says that of all the other blasphemies, they can be forgiven. This one cannot. So we looked at some of the different ways that throughout church history, that people have understood the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, whether it can or cannot be uh, occur today. We looked at all of that. But then at the end of the first hour, we transitioned from looking at all the past ways that people looked at it, and we started setting up that we are going to look at the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in this hour from a dispensational point of view. Because we've covered the other ways in the past. We've talked about it. We've studied it. I've given my my understanding of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but we have never looked at it from a purely dispensational standpoint. So that's what we're going to attempt to do. Whether you agree or disagree, that's up to you, but we're going to do our best to understand it. So is everyone ready? Well, one of the things we did in the first hour, we did look at this accusation is made against Jesus multiple times. Over and over and over in scripture, he's accused of having a demon. He's accused of having a devil. And so we talked about some of the spiritual implications from that. But for us to look at it from a dispensational standpoint, 
we have to first start with a couple of things. Some of the, first of all, let's remind ourselves of some of the basic elements of dispensationalism. Some of the basic elements of dispensationalism is, everybody remember, they believe that God still has a plan for whom? Israel. That God still has a plan for Israel and the land. God still has a plan for a king and Israel, and they still believe that there is a blessing for Israel. They believe in a future millennial kingdom and eternal promises for Israel, and they believe that the church does not replace Israel as a nation or her promises or covenants. All right? That's basic basics of dispensationalism, right? Okay, we've got that. Good? And dispensationalism typically goes with what type of interpretation of Scripture? A literal interpretation instead of figurative or allegorical, right? Now, for us to get to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit from a dispensational standpoint, we have to understand a very important phrase. And that phrase is found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. If everyone will look at it, Matthew 4, 23. This is very important, all right? Matthew 4.23, tell me when you're there. All right, Matthew 4.23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Please note that phrase, gospel of the kingdom. Now, if you know anything about dispensationalism and you hear gospel of the kingdom, you immediately know that's different. Because dispensationalism believes gospel of the kingdom is not the same thing as the gospel we would typically preach for people to become saved. They believe the gospel of the kingdom deals specifically with whom? Israel. All right, as one study Bible says in their notes, the gospel of the kingdom, the primary topic of Jesus' preaching was that the long-awaited Christ, the human ruler through whom God would establish his reign on earth, had come. Another way of saying it, the gospel of the kingdom was specifically to Israel telling them that what had arrived? The Messiah, the long-awaited king. So it was specifically for them. This phrase is used a couple of places. Go to Matthew 24, 14. Matthew 24, 14. Go to Matthew 24. Anybody know, remember anything about Matthew 24? Okay, Matthew 24 is the, the entire discussion here is about the temple and it being destroyed, right? Matthew 24 very much focuses on what event? 70, 70 AD. You, you guys should be experts on this. We've studied Matthew 24 so many times that it's painful, right? Matthew 24. Everyone wants to turn it into something about the second coming, but Matthew 24 is primarily about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Do I have to, do I have to, I don't, I don't have time to prove it, but trust me, it's there because what happens? The disciples point out the 
temple that was standing at that time. And Jesus is like, yeah, this looks great. But guess what's going to happen? It's all going to be destroyed. And they immediately say, give us the signs. And he starts articulating signs. And then everyone else comes along way after 70 AD. And we see those signs. You're like, oh, there's earthquakes and wars and rumors of war. That, that's the second come. No, that was the signs leading up to 70 AD. All right. Everybody got that? Now, look at Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then, then shall the end come. Many people take the gospel of the kingdom there and take, just apply that to the normal gospel and saying the gospel has to be preached around the entire world. Then Jesus will come back. But maybe this had a reference to what needed to be preached prior to 70 A.D. And remember, we talked about this and how when we looked at some of the writings of Paul, he had said that the gospel had been preached at all the world. And we're like, well, wait a minute. And the dating of some of that was prior to 70 A.D. So the gospel, so Jesus is saying the gospel of the kingdom has to be. So the gospel of the kingdom now may give kind of a time frame, huh? Possibly. I'm not, I'm not being dogmatic. I'm not being dogmatic. Go to Mark chapter 1. Go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. It's not the exact phrase, but we're going to see something here. Mark 1, everybody there? What is said about the kingdom in Mark 1, 14 through 15? Is the phrase used? Oh, it's used. In some translations, it's not. Mark 1, verse 14. Now, after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the, the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Jesus comes and he preaches the gospel of the kingdom, right? Telling them that the kingdom had arrived because the king had arrived, correct? Okay, everybody... Understand so far? Go to Luke chapter 4, verse 43. Luke 4, 43. What is, what is stated here in Luke 4, 43? I must do what? Preach the kingdom of God. Everybody see that? Preach the kingdom of God. Now, these are just a few examples, but the concept of the gospel of the kingdom is present throughout the teachings of Jesus and even the early apostles. It emphasizes the proclamation of the good news about the arrival and establishment of God's kingdom through Jesus Christ. So it really emphasizes the king had arrived, the kingdom is here. Right Now, in many ways, within dispensationalism, the argument is Jesus came and did what for Israel? He preached the gospel of the kingdom. Mr. Goodlett will probably know this. What does Jesus do in that case? Well, in dispensationalism, he literally offers them the kingdom. 
He's offering them the kingdom. He's offering them the king. And what is their response to that offer? Rejection. All right. In fact, listen to this. Dispensationalists believe that the gospel of the kingdom pertains to the future millennial kingdom mentioned in the book of Revelation. They see a clear distinction between the gospel and the, of that gospel and the gospel of grace, which is focused on salvation through faith and, and, uh, faith and the death and resurrection. So they, so dispensationalists believe that there's a distinction between the gospel of the kingdom. It's about the kingdom. It's about the millennial reign of Christ on earth. It's about that. It's not about the gospel of believing in Christ and him crucified. It's, it's a different, it's a completely different thing. Now, some people, just note, note, others completely would disregard that and say there is no distinction, there is no different, and to make a difference, there is foolishness. Just so that you note that, all right? But we want to know, what would this have to do with what? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, all right? So, According to the dispensation, to dispensational theology, the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom was temporarily paused when the Jewish people rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So they believe it was preached, then it was paused, because then what happens? The focus goes to the Gentiles, book of uh, Romans, right? Israel is blinded, and then you preach to... Now, you don't preach the gospel of the kingdom to the Gentiles because the kingdom is promised to whom? To Israel, according to dispensational theology. Does everybody understand that? Okay, all right, just so that we understand this, all right? Uh, They believe that in the present age, the church age, the gospel of grace is being proclaimed to both Jew and Gentile. However, they anticipate a future restoration of Israel and the resumption of the gospel of the kingdom during the tribulation period and the millennial kingdom. It is important to note that not all Christians agree with the nuances of dispensational theology and their alternative interpretations of the relationship between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of um, the gospel, uh, the gospel of, you know, the normal gospel. Understanding these concepts may vary among different theological traditions and scholars. So we, they are stating that there is a difference. Now, here's the question. If there is a gospel of the kingdom, and note, what did I say? If, if, does that have anything to do with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Did it has, does it have anything to do with it in any way, shape, or form? And if it does, does that change our understanding of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and literally remove it from having anything to do with us and it had something specifically to do with whom? Israel. Because we do know the people accusing Jesus of being, you know, doing this miracle by the power of Satan were the scribes and the Pharisees, which were the religious leaders of Israel. And in other places, the text, because we looked at them in the first hour, It says the Jews believed he had a devil. So this is very much in a Jewish-Israel context. Now, we're going to put some scriptures together here, and we'll see if this works. Go to Matthew chapter 9. Now, I have not got this, this by no means. Listen, I want to make sure I drive this point home. I'm putting forth a hypothesis here. I don't know if I have it even all worked out yet, right? I'm still trying to formulate the concept. I don't know if I agree. I don't know if I disagree. But I like to hear the different interpretations because the one thing we do know, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as a subject has divided Christians for 2,000 years. Nobody agrees on it. 
right? And no matter how you try to get around it, it raises lots of questions. But if we can remove it from all of those problems and say, wait a minute, this has a very specific dispensational understanding specifically for Israel, it may be able to clear up all of those problems. Now, it may create its own problems, but at least as a Christian, you should know all the different views, right? That's, that's my job is to make sure you know them. All right, so go to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, and let's see what happens here, all right? In Matthew chapter 9, we'll start in verse 30. Well, where do we want to start here? Let's go, well, let's go to verse 27, Matthew 9, 27. Let's establish some, some context here, all right? When Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, saying, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Now that phrase, thou son of David, is that significant? Yeah, why is it significant? Okay, that's clearly messianic. All right, clearly messianic. That's clearly about, um, you know, uh, about the Messiah, very Israel term, right? Okay, all right. And when he was come into the house, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said unto him, Believe ye that I am able to do this? And they said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touch uh, he then touched he their eyes, and saying, According to your faith, it uh, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. But they went, but they when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all the country. And as he went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the dumb spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never so seen in, in Israel. All right. But the Pharisees said he, he casteth out devils through the prince of devils. And then please note, so Israel is very much involved here, right? We've got very Israel terms, messianic terms. And then what does it say in verse 35? Preaching the good news of the kingdom. Everybody see that? All right. So now we have the gospel of the kingdom right here. Do we not? Preaching the gospel of the kingdom and good news for the Jews before. Uh, a demon is cast out, mute spoke, multitude marveled. Pharisee said he did this by Satan. Jesus simply ignores it that time. Does he say anything at this time about you're committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? He doesn't say anything like that. He ignores it and immediately does what? He preaches the gospel of the kingdom. He preaches the gospel of the kingdom. Everybody see that? All right, go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse, uh, let's go. Um, so where do we want to go here? Um, yeah, go to Matthew 12, I guess 13. Then said he to this man, stretch forth thine hand. He stretched it forth and it was restored whole like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. All right, so he did a healing. He was accused of what? having a devil, he does another healing and they want to kill him. Once again, who is it trying to do this? It's the Pharisees. It's the Pharisees. Now, go to, uh, that's Matthew 12, 13. Now look at Matthew 12, 22. 
right? Now, what do we have here in this entire story? Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spoke and saw. This is the very same reference in uh, Mark chapter 3. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of... Oh, there we have that phrase again, right? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, The fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, prince of the devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, it is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out the devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges." But if I cast out the devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is... All right, did you just hear that? If I cast out by the Spirit, what has come to you? The kingdom of God. Very much now deals with the preaching of the kingdom of God, right? He's like literally saying, hey, look, I just did a miracle. And if I did this by the Spirit... The kingdom of God is here. If you turn around and say that I did this by the power of Satan, you're literally rejecting what? The spirit. You're rejecting the gospel of the kingdom. You're rejecting the king. You're rejecting the kingdom. You're rejecting it all. Does everyone see that? All right. I cannot, I cannot stress. That's very important, right? That's very important. Okay. Now, what, what verse was that? That's verse 28, right? Okay, uh, then the kingdom of God has come unto you or else how can it enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first blind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. Bind the strong man and he will uh, spoil his house. He that is not with me is what? Against me and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore I say unto you all manners of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Spirit of man it shall be forgiven but whosoever shall speak against the Holy Ghost it shall not be forgiven neither this world neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and the fruit uh, either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt, and his fruit corrupt, for the tr- uh, tree is known by his fruit. And then look what he does in verse 34. Oh, generation of vipers, how can you being evil speak of good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by the words thou shalt be justified, and by the words shalt thou be condemned. But please note, he goes after an entire generation. So he, he very much, the kingdom of God is very much connected to this. And the gospel of the kingdom, it, it provides a little bit of the context. Everybody get that? All right. As one source says, what's, what is he really saying? He, here is the rejection of the Messiah, the king. Surely the kingdom has come upon you and you are rejecting the Messiah. Right? So what they, what, what the dispensationalists say at this point is what's happening here, the context here, this is not so much about soteriology or salvation. This is more about them rejecting the king and the kingdom itself. So everybody got that? And then look what he does. What does he immediately go into as he's still tr- talking about this situation? 
Well, then look what happens in verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Now they want a sign. Now, he's already done miracles. He's already done miracles. And they said that the miracles was done by the power of, of the devil. But the same religious leaders now want a sign. So then what does Jesus say? He answered and said unto them, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. There shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the well's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. So he's saying that the city of Nineveh is going to rise up in, in judgment against them because someone is greater who is there who's done signs, but what have they done to the signs? They rejected it and attributed it to Satan, meaning that they've, in, in a sense, completely rejected this. Now, here, here's kind of the dispensational approach. You ready? What, what they, this is their argument, that this, that generation, he calls them a generation of vipers, that, 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 that Nineveh is going to rise up and basically judge that generation, that that generation had committed the unpardonable sin. That Israel, at that time, they committed the unpardonable sin because they had rejected their Messiah and they rejected their king, therefore they rejected the kingdom. That the context here is not one of soteriology, it's one about the kingdom and them rejecting the kingdom. This is the dispensational view. Let me, let me read more about what they say. They say this is the only context which this sin is found. In other words, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not really ever mentioned again. Whenever it's mentioned, it's in this context. Here's Jesus. He's doing miracles. It's the religious leaders of Israel saying, it's of the devil. And then he's like, hey, but if I do this by the Spirit, the kingdom has arrived. That that's the context of this that it's not mentioned in any other context. Right. Well, as they say, not an individual, but national. It says it can't be, it says not individual, but national. Can't be applied to subsequent Jewish generations, but only to those present while Jesus was physically present. That it was for that Generation, it was for that nation at that time. And then they rejected it and judgment came. It came severely. 70 AD. 70 AD, because what happens in 70 AD? Everything is destroyed, right? Here's, here's some quotes, all right? Here's a quote. Some view the destiny of the nation depended on the interpretation of the person of Christ. Their sin of rejection would stand unforgiven and result in temporal judgment on that generation. That judgment fell in 70 AD, not individual sin, but of the nation. That, that is their argument. 
is what happened. And we know, we know from the book of Romans what occurs. The blinding of Israel. Okay. Setting aside. Why? That's their judgment. Judgment for what? The rejection, rejection of the Messiah. The rejection of the kingdom. And then they're set aside. Who's brought in? Gentiles. Until the time of the Gentiles be. And then what happens? All Israel will be saved. That's the way the, that's the, way the text reads. Okay. I understand how all millennialist and reformed people argue that it doesn't mean Israel, but all right. We've already been through that a million times, right? Okay, I I think so. All right. Um, Look at, uh, and then if you, I'm just going to look at a couple of other scriptures really quick here. And then again, you have the whole thing about Jonah starting in verse 38 and following, right? And is it not interesting? He says, hey, in fact, just make sure you know, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall do what? Condemn it. That generation, that, that entire, that, that entire period, that all of the na- nation of Israel is going to be, ju- are they not going to be judged in 70 AD? Are they ju- and how are they judged? As a nation. As a nation, nationally. Now, just let's look at some other scriptures. All right. Look at a Luke chapter 11. I'm not saying this works perfectly. I'm, I, I, I understand. I'm going to get, you know, 50 emails, people arguing. Just remain calm. Take a deep breath. All right. Okay. Uh, look, uh, Luke 11, starting in verse 29. All right. You have the same. Disca- look, look, guess what? Please. Do you see the context? It's in the context, once again, of the, Jesus being accused of having a devil. Does everybody see the context? Verse 17 and following is the same account, is it not? Right? Then, in verse 29, when the people were gathered uh, thick together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonah, Jonah was a sign unto Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. Everybody see that? Jonah becomes a sign to the Ninevites. Judgment is coming. Repent. The whole city repented. Jesus was a sign to that generation, and it was a sign of judgment. Just as Jonah showed up to that city, Jesus showed up to Israel. Yes? Okay. Uh, if you go back to if if you go back to Matthew twelve, the in that same section, right? In Matthew chapter twelve, verse thirty eight and following, he speaks of it again, and he talks about three days and three nights, right? Uh, a similar is a sign is clearly a message sent from God. So clearly, a sign is being they wanted a sign, and they're going to get one sign, and that sign is going to be the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And what is that sign going to ultimately tell them? What is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ going to tell Israel? They killed, you killed your Messiah. You crucified your Messiah. Right? Isn't that how they're going to preach in the book of Acts? All right? Okay. And then, um, if you look at verse 43 to 45, there's some more things here about an unclean spirit has gone out. He walketh through dry places seeking rest and finding none, right? Right? Uh, then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. 
And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then he goeth and taketh with himself uh, seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so, it shall be also unto... this. It's going to be worse for this wicked generation. Everybody see that? Right? That's That's Matthew 12, verse 45. Everybody got it? I'll make sure everybody sees it. Because it's very important. He goes right back to the generation. And he tells them, and he basically tells them, it's going to be worse for you guys. Right? Now, this is how one puts it. The parable of the evil spirit. What does this apply to? This This generation. What was true of this man was true of that particular evil generation. But they rejected him. The last state of that generation was to be worse than the first. And then that would be worse where? That generation was in a bad situation because they were under Rome, right? Jesus comes, tries to tell them, tries to preach, offers the gospel of the kingdom. They reject it. And then what's what's the latter state of Israel? Worse, they are are destroyed as a nation and the temple is burnt and, and, and destroyed. So judgment came upon them. Everybody see that? Right. Then they say, gee, uh, now according to, again, dispensationalists, Jesus' teaching changes in Matthew chapter 13. And this is what they say. You ready for this? This is very important. That starting in Matthew 13, guess what you no longer hear again? The gospel of the kingdom. He let it go in Matthew 9. So in Matthew 9, he kind of let it go. He didn't really say anything is aware of it in Matthew 10, repeated in Matthew 12, Jesus addresses the rejection of the king and speaks of judgment. Their decision was in stone. The Ninevites could repent, but this was not an option for this generation. The offer of the kingdom was done. They say Matthew 12 is the turning point. Matthew 9 and 10, Jesus just kind of lets it go when he's accused of a devil. He just kind of lets it go. He gets to Matthew 12 and he's like, no, 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 no. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then he connects it with then the judgment of Nineveh. They repented. You guys are not going to repent. You can't repent. In a sense, you've committed the, the ultimate sin, the unpardonable sin. And the unpardonable sin here is now going to be judgment as a nation and you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. That's, that's the argument. Now, when you go to Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, now, there's some discussion here and I think it will be different amongst many dif- uh, different dispensationalists. But Acts chapter 3, look at verse 19. Everybody there? Acts 3 verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of, G- of the Lord and he shall send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you whom the heaven must receive until the time of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets since the world began. 
Now, there's a preaching here. Now, one dispensationalist says it this way. Peter to the Pharisees encouraged them to repent and believe. He, he is offering again the kingdom to the Jews. Some say he isn't offering it to them again. The time of restoration of all things is the second coming. So they're saying they're not necessarily offering it again, telling them to believe, believe in Jesus and wait for the restitution of the restoration of all things. Where? And, the, and where would that restoration occur? In the millennial kingdom. So they're saying this is not necessarily an offer. You could, you could get into a lot of discussions there. All right? Now, this, this is, they, they ask a question. How does a dispensational approach alleviate the interpretation, interpretation difficulties of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? By understanding that this is for the Jewish people, the Jewish kingdom, the Abrahamic promised kingdom, that this was a national rejection, the offer of the kingdom has stopped with that generation and with that understanding, well, all of those other problems go away with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This was an issue for whom? Israel. And they rejected it by blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And by doing that, they were. Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew 12. Hey, if I'm doing this by the Spirit, the kingdom is here. By saying it, I'm doing it by Satan, you're rejecting what? The kingdom, the king. Therefore, you get what? Judgment. And there's no forgiveness for this. From a nationalistic standpoint for that period, of, for that generation, they were going to be condemned. And they were condemned. In fact, the, the nation, it will, I mean, look at the situation today. Is it, is it fixed now? No, all right, no. Um, and then they, they go on and ask some questions. Is God's grace limited? No. This, and listen, this isn't about personal salvation. Does this make the loss of salvation possible? No, this isn't about salvation. Is this a different sin? No, it's very, it's very contextually described as a sin for the nation of Israel. Did Jesus die for all sins? Yes, this isn't about the cross. It isn't about propitiation. Why is this unforgivable? Because of the context, the promise and the offer, this generation will be judged. And were they judged? Yes. Were they forgiven and from that nationalistic standpoint? No. Did they get the kingdom? No. They got judgment. In fact, are they, they're still blinded? Even nationally today. Does that make sense? And then look, let's look at some uh, uh, random scriptures here. You can see what you want to do with these. You ready? Go to Matthew 22. Go to Matthew 22. Some of these may help us. Some of these may not. Matthew 22. All right. Jesus tells a parable of a wedding banquet, right? Everybody see that in verse 1? Or he tells many parables. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son. He sent forth his servant to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. And again, he sent forth other servants, saying, tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat lambs are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their way, one to his farmer, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servant and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard, therefore, he was wroth or enraged, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their 
city. Some people believe that's a reference to 70 AD. That judgment, that, no Siri, I don't, Siri. I, that's Matthew uh, 22, verse 7. Everybody see that? All right. Everybody got that? So that, that, that's, they, some believe that's a d- direct reference uh, to that. Go to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Okay. Go back to verse, uh, go back to verse 33. Matthew 23, 33. See if this sounds kind of familiar to all of this. You serpents, ye, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall you scourge in your synagogues and to persecute them from city to city. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barakas, uh, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gather her chicks under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth, to you shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. What, ha- what is that a reference to? Them being destroyed when? 70 AD. So there's these, that, that, in other words, this is not a one-time situation. They kept being warned that the armies are going to come and destroy everything. You're going to be destroyed. Why are they going to be destroyed? Their rejection. And their rejection is clearly most identifiable where? When they accuse Jesus of having... A devil. This is a national sin against the nation of Israel. That, that is at least the way I am, am, am understanding this. Go to chapter 24. four two. What happens here? And Jesus said unto them, speaking of the temple, see you not all these things? Verily I say unto you that there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. That's a reference to 70 A.D. Everybody see that? All right. What happens in Luke 21? Luke 21. Is it not the same thing that's going to be talked about? Luke 21, verse 5. And some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. And he said, look at verse uh, 6. As for these things which you behold, the day shall come in which there shall not be left one stone upon another. They shall, that shall not be thrown down. And they immediately ask when. He warns them that this judgment is coming. Why is judgment coming specifically against the nation? Because of a national rejection of their king. So far, so good. Go to Acts chapter 2. Acts 
Acts chapter 2, we can go to verse 37. Now, Peter has preached about Jesus, right? In fact, look at verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. You killed your Messiah. And then what does he do in verse 37? Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For this promise is unto you and to your children and to all those that are afar off, even as many as the Lord shall call. And many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward Generation. Save yourselves from this generation. Which generation? The one that's going to be, the one that's judged nationally. But they are to save themselves from that generation by believing what? In the gospel to be saved. The gospel of the kingdom they've rejected. And as a nation, they are going to be judged. Everyone see that? All right. Now, they also want us to look at some things in Hebrews, but we would have to go through and try to find that. And so because of time, we will not. All right. So very important to understand. The dispensationalists believe what? Are you ready? Let's just try to summarize that that section about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit comes into direct context of the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus has been pre- now. This is, so their entire view is predicated on what? That the gospel of the kingdom is different. Does everybody understand that? It's predicated on that, and that the gospel of the kingdom is for whom? Israel. And the gospel of the kingdom is basically saying what? You're here, believe in the Messiah, and the kingdom is yours. And they say no. In fact. They, they say no multiple times. In fact, they accuse Jesus of having a demon multiple times as we looked in the first hour. Multiple times. And Jesus doesn't really say anything until, well, it's recorded in Mark 3. It's recorded in Matthew 12, right? And in Luke, I think, 11. And then all of a sudden, in those instances, Because all the other instances, Jesus doesn't say anything, really. He doesn't even really address it. He just kind of lets it go. He keeps preaching the kingdom of the gospel of the kingdom. And then all of a sudden here, he's like, that's it. That's it. If you commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, there's not going to be any forgiveness. None. Judgment is coming. Because you're accusing what I'm doing as being a work of Satan, therefore you're rejecting me. Because if I'm doing this by the Spirit of God, then you should know the kingdom is here. You've been given a sign. So then he mentions what? And both, in all the cases, he mentions whom? Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah showed up. He preached. They repented. I've shown up someone greater than Jonah, and you have rejected. Therefore, judgment is coming. And he has given multiple accounts that judgment was coming upon them. The temple's going to be destroyed. People are going to be killed. They don't listen. And then guess what happens? According to a dispensationalist, the gospel of the kingdom stops being preached. And now the emphasis goes to whom? To the Gentiles. To the Gentiles. To the Gentiles. 
And that is supposed to happen till just house be fulfilled. Right? Now, let's just, just for, just for make sure we know this and just for you to participate, go look in the book of Romans and find that section where all of that is outlined clearly. Because that's a very important part of Romans. And it's a very important part of this entire discussion. Okay, so you go find that. While you're doing that, I'm going to look up something else really quick. All right. Yeah, see, they, they do not make it different. Yeah. Yeah, see, we, we, could go, we could go all day and arguing about the gospel of the kingdom. I mean, there's so many, art, like you just get online and start looking for argument. Uh, dis- nobody agrees on what it is, okay? But uh, everybody find it in uh, the book of Romans, Did anybody find it yet? Well, just the, the whole section. It goes through everything that happens to Israel. Then Israel's going to be saved. And Nobody's found it yet. It's pretty. It's a pretty important section. Okay, well, let's, yeah, we'll start in verse 11, okay? All right, everybody ready? Romans 11, verse 1, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for also I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, anyone just reading this in just normal, everyday reading skills, clearly, when he says, hath God cast away his people, what people is being referred to here? How do we know it's Israel? Because he literally then turns around and says... God forbid, for I am an Israelite, right? Literally, he's right. hey, God is not done with his people, and he identifies the people by saying, hey, I'm an Israelite. Clearly, that identifies the people, right? I mean, is that, is that difficult? That, that, that's basic reading comprehension. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Uh, what ye not, what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer uh, of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to the image of Baal. Even so then at the present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. For if it's by grace, then there's no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he, he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. As it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that should not see, and ears that should not hear unto this day. And David said, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back away, uh, all way. He says they've been blinded. 
They can't see. Right? I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak unto you Gentiles, and so much I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but the life from the dead? And so he makes it very clear that what? They're set aside for the Gentiles to come in. And then it says in verse uh, 25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until, until, everyone see the word, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. So guess what? According to dispensationalists, Jesus came preaching what? The gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom was an offer to the Israel for their Messiah and the promised kingdom because God had promised them a kingdom. Yes? And how did they respond? Rejection and rejection. And multiple times they accused their king, God incarnate, of having a devil. And Jesus, for the most part, ignored it and did not say much about it until... He didn't. (laughs) And then what did he say? You're committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be forgiven. And and Nineveh repented, but you're not going to repent. Judgment is coming upon. They're going to rise up in judgment against this entire generation. Why? And then you got scripture after scripture saying what's going to happen. This generation is going to be judged. This generation is going to be condemned. Right? And condemned as a nation. And then where does that show up? 70 AD. Destruction. Then, starting in Acts, hey, you need to save yourself from this generation. And how can they save themselves from that generation? By believing in the gospel of grace. And then the gospel of the kingdom does not come back into play till when? Till the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled, then Israel will ultimately get their promised kingdom. That's the dispensational view. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying that that clarifies that what does that take care of? You don't have to get into you can lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. Can you commit this sin? You can't commit this sin because it was a national thing. In fact, it's very similar to how you should interpret the book of Hebrews. All of those warnings in the book of Hebrews that everybody wants to make soteriological, they're not soteriological. They are what? They're about the nation of Israel telling them, your religion's about to be wiped off the face of the earth. And guess what? There's not going to be any more sacrifice for sin. Why? Because there's literally not going to be any more sacrifice for sin. Everyone reads that like, oh, so I could, I could, I could commit a sin, and then now there's no more sacrifice for sin. It's not. No, we have a sacrifice for our sin. It's Christ. He's telling the Jews, you're not going to have anything. If you go back to Judaism, you're going to have what? No temple, no sacrifice, no priest, no high priest. You're not going to have anything. 
So you better look to Christ. But we take that and try to make those soteriological warnings. And then you get everybody from Church of Christ to charismatic saying, oh, you can lose your salvation. You can lose your salvation. You can look. You're like, can you not read it in its context? It was written right prior to 70 AD. Well, the, 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 the dispensationalists are arguing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is in the exact same context. And so therefore, it's for Israel, and they committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and as a result of committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the nation was condemned and destroyed. Now, you, can, you may agree, you may disagree, but, I, but the reason I wanted to present it to you is I can pretty much, by, by a show of hands, who have ever heard that point of view before today? The, dis, the dispensational view, yeah, that that sin was was for Israel. No. No. All right. So that's why we cover things here, right? Because when I first heard it, immediately I was like, whoa, okay, I've gone to lots of dispensational schools, lots of dispensational schools and dispensational churches. But I never remembered that being articulated for that particular sin, right? The way way it would typically be viewed in a dispensational part is, well, that, that was just for Israel, but it wasn't really explained beyond that, right? That, oh, that section is for Israel. Okay, don't, don't worry about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, that, like some dispensationalists do all, they, they do away with a lot of stuff in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were like, that was for a different dispensation, not for us. So, right, right, right. Yeah, and so that, any, that we can still commit the sin by not believing in Christ, right. And so it's still applicable, but they take it and just like, no, this is, this is specific for then. And if you look at all the surrounding language, it, it fits somewhat. I mean, there's no question. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The real issue is, do you believe that's a different gospel? Now, just so that you know, and I've challenged you to get online, 99% of the people are going to say it's not a different gospel. It's the same gospel. It's just called the gospel of the kingdom. It's no different. But it's hard for me to hear gospel of the kingdom and not think it's different because I know how they would have understood the word kingdom. Don't we have Bible to prove how they understood it? Give us the king. And when he come riding in, what are they were like? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What were they expecting? The king. And then they didn't. And we know that that's the way they understood it because they get really ticked off because instead of going to drag Herod out of the, you know, the, the political leaders out of office, he goes to the temple and drives them out. And they're like, whoa, buddy. You got your you got your mission all confused here. You don't come yelling at us. You go yell at them. And, and then after everything happens, and right before he gets ready to ascend, what do the disciples come to him and say? Is it time for the, the kingdom? Showing that they were still expecting the kingdom. So I don't know how you can read that he preached the gospel of the kingdom and think, oh, that, that was just the gospel. None of them would have understood that. They would have heard gospel of the kingdom was the good news. Remember, gospel of the kingdom. The NIV translates this that way, and I think it's very important. Good news of the kingdom. What was the good news of the kingdom for an Israelite? We get the kingdom! Right. And so they, that's what they would have heard. And the next thing you know, they're like, you have... You have you have a demon. Okay. Well, if I didn't have a demon, 
the kingdom of God would be here. Well, since you think I have a demon, you're not forgiven and you're not getting the kingdom. And then, but magically, it seems, Jesus stops using that term. So why does he use the term and then just stops? Now, I understand we have to use a harmony of the gospel and to realize, does it all fit perfectly chronologically? I don't know if it all fits perfect chronologically. In the, chronolo- in the chronological order of Matthew, it fits perfectly. Gospel of the kingdom, gospel of the kingdom, gospel of the kingdom, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, no more gospel of the kingdom. Why? That's, and what is Matthew supposed to be about? The king. Even non-dispensationalists believe that. Well, then if it's about a king and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and then all of a sudden, after the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, he stops preaching the gospel of the kingdom, maybe there's a sin. Now, maybe it doesn't fit perfectly, but that's at least the claim. Now, you can go look. You, you looked up all the references of the gospel of the kingdom, and in Matthew, it stops, does it not? So we know in Matthew, it clearly stops. Now, you can say, well, it's used over here in Mark. or yeah, Okay, now we'd have to try to put it in chronological order. Yeah, it was really early in Mark, right? It's really early in uh, every place. It's really early. And then later it just stops. Why does he stop using that phrase? Yeah, Mark 1. And then then that's it. Well, guess what happens in Mark 3? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? It's used in early Matthew. Stops when you get to Matthew 12, right? Like, I'm, I'm not, look, you do your own work on it. But we'll have to stop there or Stacy's going to do work on me because, uh, well, she's probably done the teaching. So let me stop. All right. So let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, I'm thankful for a church where we can try to work out these theological issues in a way that others probably would not. I pray that we would give this much meditation and thought. We are by no means, Lord, saying that we are right. We're just saying that this is an interesting way of looking at this very scary and frightening sin. Because if we could be guilty of that sin, then we should live in complete fear every day because we would never want to commit said sin because it would mean no salvation. So Lord, help us understand it correctly and help us uh, just continue to be students of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...